Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Study. In this audio, I'm going to cover verses 8 through 25 in Romans 7. Our context is this. Paul talked about the wrath of God being upon all of the human race in chapters 1 and 2, both on Jew and Gentile. He says, therefore, we need to be declared righteous before God or we're going to die. And that he talked about at the end of chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he talked about justification by faith. And then he says, okay, now that you're justified by faith legally before God in heaven, now how are you going to walk out your life on this earth? So he talks about sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And in chapter 6, he's going to talk about how sin violates the principle of sanctification and how sin is, creates death and bondage. And then in chapter 7, he's talking about how the law creates sin, knowledge of sin and actual practice of sin, which, of course, then leads to death and bondage. So he's dealing with a person in Romans 7 who is enslaved to the power of sin. Then he's going to go to chapter 8 and say, this is how we get out of it, which is living by by the Spirit. Now, there's a big, huge theological controversy in Romans 7 as to who this person living in sin is. Is it an unregenerate person before he got saved? Or is it Paul talking about his current life as a Christian, but he's under the law and therefore is living under the bondage of the flesh? And he's having trouble with sin, and then he gets free from his sin in Romans 8. We'll talk about that controversy as we go through. So we'll start in verse 8, Romans 7. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, that's the law, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, I need to go back and pick up verse 7 here, the immediate context. In verse 7, Paul said, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. So there Paul shows that one of the functions of the Mosaic law, we're talking about the Mosaic law here, one of its functions is to let us know that we're sinners. Paul uses an example from the Mosaic law. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet. So the law gives us increased knowledge of sin and increased knowledge that we're sinners. And now in verse 8, he says, not only does the law do that, it also it also creates sin. And he gives the example of coveting again. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the, through the commandment, through the law, produced in me coveting of every kind, produced. That means the law created sin. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now that word opportunity, sin, has an opportunity through the commandment. The Greek word is a forme. Thayer describes it as a starting point a place from which a movement or attack is made, a base of operations. So the law gave Paul an opportunity for sin to come after, excuse me, the law gave sin an opportunity for sin to come after Paul. Now Paul says apart from the law, sin is dead. There's some options as to what that means. We could say it means sin is non-existent. But then I've studied the Bible says, no, that's not what it means. Sin is still there. In Paul's life, in me, in Paul's life. Well, let's look at some options as what dead means. One is the sin is not fully perceived, as the NIV Study Bible and Steve Atkinson suggest. Now, in favor of this option is in the next two verses in Romans 7. The next two verses clearly talk about Paul's knowledge of sin. Let me read those for you. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. As we'll see when we get to those two verses, when Paul says he was alive apart from the law, that means he was without knowledge that the law produces death. It was not that he was actually alive, because he wasn't. He was dead in his sins. But when the commandment came, sin came to life. That means came to life to his consciousness, and he died. 
All right, so that's the first option is what it means that sin is dead. It means it's not fully perceived. Another option is is it's non-existent as far as the sinner is concerned. Of course, sin exists outwardly in the world. Nobody would ever be foolish enough to deny that. But you could say that sin is dead means it's non-existent as far as Paul is concerned. And, of course, that sounds like Paul was saying that he was sinlessly perfect, which, of course, cannot be. But if you say the sin is non-existent as far as the sinner is concerned, that doesn't mean the sinner will never sin because he's always under some sort of law, the law of conscience. So you could say apart from the law, if it were possible to be apart from the law, yes, I could be totally without sin because I wouldn't know that there was any sin where there's no sin, there's no transgression accounted. So Paul could be saying apart from the law, sin is dead. So therefore, and since obviously sin is present in me, therefore there has to be some kind of law I'm under and that would be the law of my conscience. I don't think that's what he means, although that's a logical possibility. The third option is is that sin, this is from the ESV study Bible, that sin is dormant or latent. For apart from the law, Paul says, sin is dormant or latent in me. I don't know. Dead doesn't sound dormant or latent to me. You see a corpse by the side of the road, would you say, ooh, that corpse is dormant? Dormant means sleeping. Dorme is sleep in French. You know, is dormant, it's sleeping? No, it's dead. So I don't think that's a good option, even though the ESV study Bible suggests that. I think that what he means is option one. I don't think that that sin is non-existent in Paul. It's just that he was sinning and didn't realize it. He was he was it was dead to him as far as his consciousness was concerned. It was not fully perceived. So we go to verse nine and ten. Once I was alive apart from the law, and again I'm going to assume this means he was unaware of his sin, not that he was actually spiritually alive because he wasn't he was dead in his sins he was unregenerate once i was alive apart from the law but when the commandment came when the law came sin sprang to life and i died again sin sprang to life how because it became implanted in his consciousness and then he died he says oh my gosh i'm a terrible filthy rotten sinner the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me and when he died he then became aware of his need for salvation. Now, how can we say that the commandment was meant for life? How does the law, how was it meant for life? There's a problem with that, really, because if the law was meant by God not to save, but rather to point out our sin and our need for a Savior, in other words, the point of the law was to condemn us, how can we say it was meant for life? Well, it's ultimately meant for life, because once the law points out that we're sinners, now we can then take the next step and get justified by faith apart from the law. So the law resulted in death for Paul because it condemned him. It made him realize he was a sinner. The law cannot bring life. It only reveals what sin is, just like a mirror can reveal one's pimples. But it cannot make them go away. That's my good friend Steve Ackerson's homely metaphor. He's got he's full of these things. Kind of like Watchman Nee was good at, good at doing that too, coming up with metaphors that the simple mind can understand. So when this... Sin came to life, and when he died, what happened then? This is when Paul realized he was guilty before the law. This, of course, happened before his conversion. In the heart and conscience of the apostle, as John Gill puts it, in his heart he realized, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. Now, I make the point here, this must have happened early in Paul's life because he was rabbinically trained from childhood in Jerusalem, so he knew the law. So when the law finally hit him, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. I suspect that was pretty early on. Now, let's talk about sin. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. Sin sprang to life. What does sin do? Now, I've got a good collection here of things that sin does. I'm going to read them to you in, in one after the other. 
to show you sin wars against the mind. It wars against the soul. It surrounds us and besets us. It brings us into bondage and subjection. It entices us and works our death. Let me read you a scripture for each one of these propositions. How to sin war against the mind, Romans 7.23. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, in my flesh, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin. Wars, the sin wars against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Fleshly desires is another way of saying sin. Sin surrounds us and besets us, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. The sin that so easily ensnares us. It's subtle. It's deceptive. Bring us, sin brings us into bondage and subjection, Romans 6.12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. You obey it as a slave obeys its master. Sin entices us and works our death, James 1, verses 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sin and death, folks, it goes together like Pixie and Dixie. We go to Romans 7, 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Sin sought an opportunity through the law. That's just like verse 8 above, which says this. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Same thing. Remember? Sin finds a vantage point and says, aha, the law gives me, the law gives sin a vantage point, a platform, if you will, which sin can operate from in order to do its deadly work in the life of a person. So sin deceived Paul, deceived me, just like Adam was deceived and killed when he ate that fruit. He thought it was good, and Eve too. They thought the fruit was good. It was delicious, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. The deceitful pride of life. Oh, it looks so good, but that ain't the truth. I think of all those people that do LSD. You know, it's really funny. One of the founders of the LSD craze in the hippie movement back in the 60s recently died. Ross Doss or whatever his name was. I forgot his name. He gave up LSD. He used to go around teaching that, teaching that psilocybin and, and LSD uh, and all these hallucinatory, hallucinatory drugs were good for you. It'll give you freedom. But he quit because... He was deceived, just like a lot. It's amazing how many of these rock stars back in the 60s are all doing dope, and how many of them, the ones that survived, that didn't die from their addictions, they got off of drugs so they realized, man, this stuff is deadly. I mean, just in the last month, I saw an article that Willie Nelson had quit smoking pot. <laughs> so, yeah, sin always looks good at first. Oh, I think I want to commit adultery with this person. I just saw an old Hollywood movie. Joan Crawford wants to commit adultery with Greer Garson's husband. And she just thinks it's going to be so wonderful because she loves him more than the wife does. Well, she ended up destroying her life, except that, of course, those old Hollywood movies have everybody getting straight at the end, living happily ever after. But she was deceived by the thought of that adultery. She thought that was going to do her good, and actually it did her bad. It killed Paul. That's what sin does. It kills you. Sin and death goes together, like Pixie and Dixie, as I just said. Adam Clark says, when sin killed Paul, it, quote, subjected Paul to the death that the law promises transgressors. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that he paraphrases this verse as, discovered me to myself to be a condemned and gone man. <laughs> a condemned and gone man. Yes, sir, that's what sin did. It killed Paul. Romans 7.10, 
the previous verse, Paul says, I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. Now, it has just occurred to me in verse 11 that what I said about verse 10 about the commandment being meant for life, that was meant for life by God because it penultimately condemns people and then ultimately we get the spirit and get born again. But, you know, it could mean this. The commandment that was meant for life, not by God, but by Paul. Paul meant to use the law to give him life, but au contraire, it resulted in death. So the meaning, the the intention of the commandment is not by God, but by a sinner erroneously thinking that law that the law was going to give him life. The more I think about it, that's probably what Paul meant here. Although I guess it could go either way. We go to verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. The so then makes Paul answer the question he asked back in verse 7. What question did he ask in verse 7? What should we say then? Is the law sin? So then, no, the law is not sin. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. He answers in verse 12. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy. What's wrong is with us. We sin trying impossibly to keep the law. What's wrong is trying to use the, the law for something it was never designed for. It was never designed to make sinners holy. It was only designed to show us our sin, not to save us from our sin. What's wrong is the despicable use that sin made of the law. Of course, the law is holy and just and good because God created it and God don't create junk. He doesn't create something sinful. But this was an obvious retort that people, uh, Paul's objectors would say to him, Paul, you keep preaching against the law. You keep preaching against the law. Therefore, you're saying the law is bad. And that would be an easy misunderstanding to make. And Paul's saying, no, I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm saying the law is bad if it's used wrongly. As he told Tim- Timothy, the law is righteous if it's used for a good purpose. We go to verse 13, Romans 7. Therefore did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was, produced, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, the law, the law sin might become sinful beyond measure. Now, Paul is trying to absolve the law of any blame for the sin that's in his life. And so he separates out the law from the death that's caused by sin. Actually, what he really means is, did what is good ultimately cause my death? Now, penultimately, it did cause his death because the law produced sin and then sin caused death. But the final cause, the ultimate cause was sin, not the law. And then, of course, Paul mentions the oft-repeated principle that sin had to be recognized as sin. It produced death so that sin might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, in his consciousness, in his awareness, he, he realizes now sin is, whoa, it's really bad. It's, I, before, I didn't think anything was bad about sin, but now when I see the law, ooh, it's really sinful. Now, when Paul says sin might become sinful beyond measure, there's two senses he could be using that, that word, that phrase there. He could be saying that sin actually became worse in Paul, because after all, we've said easily before that the law, quote unquote, produces sin, coveting he was talking about. I think it was verse 8. Coveting. Yes, it was in verse 8. The law against coveting produced coveting in him. So it could be in that sense that the law is becoming sinful beyond measure. Or it could become sinful beyond measure because the law is increasing an awareness of sin in Paul. Paul mentions that in verse 7 because in verse 7 he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet it. So there's the awareness of the law. So verse 7 talks about sin increasing awareness of the law. And verse 8 in Romans 7 talks about sin increasing actual sins as well as knowledge of those sins. All right. Now, one more point here. 
as we leave this verse, should law be used in evangelism? Now, this is not talking about evangelism. This is talking about sin in a person's life, whether unregenerate or regenerate is a big controversy we'll talk about later. But it's talking about sin in, in, in a person's life. Now, if you take the position that Paul is talking about an unregenerate man here, that sin was producing death in him as an unregenerate sinner, well, then you could say, yeah, law can be used in evangelism. But, of course, if it's talking about sin as a regenerate person, then that issue becomes moot. Law would not be being used for evangelism. So let's look briefly at this issue. I first noticed the issue when I realized that Ray Comfort, a very well-known evangelist who uses as a focus of his evangelistic technique the idea that we need to convince our potential converts that they are sinners, and in order to do that, you have to put law on them. You have to keep talking about the laws that they violated. And, of course, he uses not the Mosaic law. He uses the law that Gentiles would would be interested in, the law of conscience. John Zins, on the other hand, a New Covenant theologian, New Covenant theology theologian, who says that the law it, it has nothing to do with the Christian, and, if, and I agree with that, but, but the problem is, is he wrote an article against Ray Comfort saying that the law should not be used in evangelism. Now, the problem with that, in my opinion, is that when you're talking about the use of the law as opposed to the Spirit, that's talking about in the Christian life. That's talking about sanctification. It's not talking about getting people justified. And I don't see anything wrong with letting the law tell people that they're rotten, miserable sinners so that they need salvation. That's what the purpose of the law was. That's how Paul got saved. Well, he got saved by vision, but that but that's how he got convinced of his sin, let's put it that way. So I would not criticize Ray Comfort for using the law in evangelism as long as he doesn't try to use it on his converts to get them sanctified. Adam Clark agrees that law should be used with evangelism. Here's a quote. Here's a quotation. The law, therefore, is the grand instrument in the hands of a faithful minister to alarm and awaken sinners, and he may safely show that every sinner is under the law, and consequently under the curse, who has not fled for refuge to the hope held out by the gospel. And so that makes logical sense to me. However, I'm not sure I know of any New Testament example of people using the law for evangelism, which is kind of an interesting point. If it's so, so prominent in evangelism, why can't we find examples of it in the scriptures? I think John Zins makes that point in his article. But at any rate, that's just a sidelight, a little rabbit trail. Let's get back to Romans 7:14. Paul continues, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh, sold into sin's power. And there we have that first contrast that we see all the way through well, through Romans 8 especially, the contrast between spirit and flesh. The law is spiritual. What does that mean? It means that it has its origin from God. The law has a spiritual origin, namely God. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. Contrary to that, though, Paul is made out of flesh. And again, he uses flesh as a common metaphor, which means one who is separate from God's power and God's control. And that's who Paul was. He's sold into sin's power. Now, if Paul is talking about his experience as a Christian, and that's controversial, I'm going to get to get to that in a minute, but if he's talking about his experience as a Christian, he didn't mean to say that was his normative experience. I am sold into sin's power. That didn't mean to say that's the way it was supposed to be. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's that great contrast between spirit and flesh. And, of course, Romans 8, 9, the flesh there is probably talking about an unregenerate person, not a regenerate person. 
But now let's get to our big controversy. Who is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about an unregenerate man himself when he was unregenerate, when he was made out of flesh and sold into sin's power? Or is he talking about when he was a carnal Christian, a fleshly Christian, not living according to the Spirit, but according to the law? Well, the word am sounds like Paul is talking about his current experience because am is a present tense. I am made out of flesh. I am sold into sin's power. Now, the NIV Study Bible, who I'm going to quote a lot from now on, they take the position that it, this that Paul in Romans 7 is referring to his Christian experience under the law as a carnal Christian. John Gill also takes that position, and he makes the argument, look, carnal, excuse me, unregenerate people, they mostly sin and don't care that they sin. But Paul here cares that he's sinning. As we go through the chapters in verse 7, he is involved in an intense spiritual struggle. He doesn't like it, but most non-Christians don't care that they sin. So let me summarize a little bit and talk about the two options here. Is Paul talking about carnal Christians? The NIV study Bibles in Gill's position. Here's a quote from John Gill. From hence to the end of the chapter, many are of the opinion that the apostle speaks in the person of an unregenerate man or of himself as unregenerate. But nothing is more clear that he speaks all along of himself in the first person. I am carnal. I myself, as in verse 25 of Romans 7, and in the present tense of what he then was. So there's the basic argument. The I pronouns and the present tenses sounds like it's Paul talking about what he was experiencing as a Christian. So here's a summary of arguments in favor of that position. An unregenerate Christian is not going to experience the conflict that Paul describes. Remember in verse 24 in this chapter, he says, Wretched man that I am. Non-Christians, so goes this argument, are not going to say that. They're not going to think they're wretched. They're having a good old time as they whore and party and carouse. And the second big argument is the I in the present tense. I am made out of flesh. Here's the other argument, the argument that Paul is referring to unregenerate Christians. I'm going to give you a quote from Adam Clark, who, who takes that position. It is difficult to conceive how the opinion could have crept into the church or prevailed there that the apostle speaks here of his regenerate state, and that what was in such a state true of himself must be true of all others in the same state. This opinion has most pitifully and most shamefully not only lowered the standard of Christianity, but destroyed its influence and disgraced its character. Well, Adam Clark gets really upset about people like John Gill and the NIV Study Bible. Now, this points out what the issue at stake is here. I'm going to point out later, I don't really care which way, which position you take on this, you're still going to end up in the same position. However, the position that Paul is talking about a regenerate Christian can be abused to the point where people say this is the normal Christian life to be a slave to sin, and so we're just going to have to live with it. And Adam Clark is really upset with that, and for good reason, because that's that's an abuse of that position. He says that that position has lowered the standards of standard of Christianity. We just we sin, we're Christians, we sin, so let's just sin. That's the way it is. However, I would answer to Adam Clark, no. If you take that position, the answer is not in in saying that sin is the, the the standard of the Christian life, but rather that Romans 8 gives the answer to the sin that's in the Christian life, mortifying the sins of your flesh by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, not according to the law, not according to the flesh, all of which Romans 8 is about. There's your answer. So I don't think, I understand why Clark would be upset about 
people like Gill and the NIV Study Bible who say that Paul is referring to himself as a regenerate Christian, but I don't think, I think he objects too strongly to that position. Now, I said that the I pronoun and the present tense am sounds like Paul is talking about himself in the present. How do, do people like Adam Clark, who think that, that Romans 7 is referring to the unregenerate, how do they handle that present? Well, they say the I, when Paul says I, he's talking hypothetically about a non-believer, not Paul himself. Well, that's possible, but I'm, in my humble opinion, I don't think that's too probable. And then when he says am and all the other present tenses that we're going to see all through the rest of chapter 7, the present tense is an historical present. You know how the historical present, the burglar enters the house. He scopes the joint. He, t- he turns on the light in the kitchen. He opens the refrigerator. He gets a bottle of beer. And then he escapes in his car after he takes a diamond necklace. See, that's telling a story, and when you tell stories, that's typically when you use the historical present. This doesn't sound like a story to me. This sounds like a theological treatise. So I have a hard time with that. Those present tenses are very powerful in my view. So I'm going to take the view that Paul is talking about the in Romans 7, the regenerate man who has sold himself into his flesh and into keeping the law, trying to keep the law, getting in his flesh, and he needs to get out of it. Now, let me summarize the arguments for the view that Paul is talking about a unregenerate person, Adam Clark's view. Romans 7, 5 says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So there we have past tense. Now, how do I counter that? If I were believing that Paul was speaking as a regenerate person living in his flesh, Under the law, I would counter that by saying that Paul is referring to his unregenerate state in verse 5, but he switched. Now, granted, that weakens my argument a little bit, but it is possible for Paul to naturally start talking about what it was like when he was a sinner, and then he gets saved, and so now he's talking about what what his problem is now that he's saved and living under the law. I really don't have a problem with that. Second argument for Adam Clark's view that Paul is referring to unregenerate sinners in Romans 7, he says that this person who is an, who Paul is talking about is, quote-unquote, sold into sin's power. That's in verse 14. And that, says Adam Clark, doesn't describe a regenerate Christian sold into sin's power. Because a Christian can escape sin's power, but a non-Christian is sold into sin's power. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. We must therefore understand the phrase sold under sin as implying that the soul was employed in the drudgery of sin, that it was sold over to this service and had no power to disobey this tyrant unless it was redeemed by another. Sold implies slavery, and so we're a slaver to sin. Well, I've got an answer to that. A slave can't escape his slavery? A slave can't escape his master? Yes, he can, especially if he's got the Holy Spirit working for him. Here's a third argument. For Adam Clark's position that Paul is referring to unregenerate people in Romans 7. 1 John 3, 9. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Now, first of all, of course, you have to understand that sin means habitually practice sin because of the present tense. Otherwise, you're getting another controversy. You're saying somebody's not able to sin. If you're a Christian, you're... Not able to sin, that's absurd. Every Christian sins. I mean, that's nonsense. So it means he's not able to habitually sin. But now, going to our controversy here, it sounds like that 1 John is saying that if 
you have the seed of Christ in you, the seed of God in you, you're not able to sin. So how can Paul in Romans 7 be talking about how he as a Christian is sold in this land? Well, my first answer to that is this. If we interpret 1 John 3 and 9 as saying that a Christian is not able to habitually sin, how do we explain Galatians 5.1, which says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, Paul tells the Galatians, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul is obviously warning the Galatians about submitting again to a yoke of slavery, the slavery of the law, which means that, yes, you can get back under the law, and we know that the law produces sin, do we not? He calls it the yoke of slavery. Well, so it's possible to be a slave and be a Christian at the same time. So I don't think 1 John 3, 9 is talking about it's not possible for a Christian to sin because that would contradict Galatians 5, 1. Well, what was John meaning in 1 John 3, 9? I think he was talking about he is not able to sin. A Christian is not able to sin in the sense of completely renouncing his salvation and becoming unborn again and and going back into the realm and dominion of the law. Here's a quote from Alfred Barnes that agrees with that. Quote, they will not sin in such a sense, talking about Christians, Christians will not sin in such a sense as to lose all true religion and be numbered with transgressors, that they will not fall away and perish. Now, the context of 1 John 3, 9 helps prove this. 1 John 3, 8 is obviously referring to non-Christians, so it makes sense that if 1 John 3, 8 is referring to non-Christians, 1 John 3, 9 is referring to non-Christians, and so when John says he is not able to sin, he's talking about Christians are not able to sin in the sense of becoming a non-Christian. 1 John 3, 8, the verse immediately preceding 1 John 3, 9, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, obviously, John is not talking about the sinner there being a Christian because this sinning person is of the devil, and Christians are not of the devil. The Son of God did not come to appear to destroy Christians. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So he's talking about non-Christians there in verse 8. Verse 9 is talking about non-Christians. It's talking about sinning to the point of becoming like a non-Christian. So when Paul, when John says that a Christian, one who has been born of God, a Christian is not able to sin, he's not talking about what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. He's talking about sinning ultimately by walking away from his salvation. Well, here's my take on this great controversy. Whichever view is correct, the implications are not great if one is wrong on the issue. Why is that? Because living in the flesh as a Christian tracks well with living in the flesh as a non-Christian. You get the same results. Death, slavery, bondage. Either way, one is a wretched man crying out for deliverance, as Paul was at the end of chapter 7. And besides, if you want to say that Romans 7 refers to the unregenerate man and we cannot use it to refer to Christians in their efforts to be sanctified, well, we can go to other verses in order to encourage sanctification among Christians. For example, Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying the same thing there. Get out from under the law, or you're going to be a slave. Galatians 5.13b, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul says, hey, you're free from the law, but don't get under the flesh. And of course, he's referring to Christians, so he says that it is possible for Christians to get under the flesh, Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, get out from under the law, get under the Spirit. So Paul's speaking the same thing in Galatians 5. He doesn't go into as much detail as 
Paul does in Romans 7, but the general idea is there. However, I am pretty convinced that Paul is talking about his regenerate self dealing with being under the law and being condemned by the law and and then having sin produced in his life, and therefore he is a slave to it. Because I think that tracks people's experience pretty much. Most Christians go through that stage of being under the law and how horrible it is, so we're going to, I'm going to assume that. I will mention the controversy as I go through, but I'm going to assume that Paul is talking about his regenerate self. We go to Romans 7.15, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. First of all, can we say, oh, Paul is absolved from all moral, moral responsibility for sinning. I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. No, he still does it. He might hate doing it, but he does it, so he's still responsible. Second point, philosophically, is it possible to do what one hates without wanting to do it? Now, this is a fine philosophical question. Voluntarism, you know, the philosophers like to talk about, do you will to do something? Do you voluntarily do it? Voluntary comes from the Latin word that means will, which means want. How can you do something you don't want to do? I mean, after all, when you rob a bank, nobody makes you do that. When you look at the at the naked woman in Playboy magazine, nobody makes you do that. However, it is possible to do it voluntarily in, in the philosophical sense, but you have an emotional desire not to do it. So strictly, philosophically, voluntarily, you do will to do it, but you don't want to do it emotionally. Now, that might seem like a fine distinction, but it's really not. Another example the governor has a son, the son commits a murder. The governor has the right to pardon the son. He voluntarily goes, refuses to pardon the son and, and allows him to go to execution, but he doesn't like it. It pains him, it grieves him. So he doesn't want to do it. He wants to do it in one sense, in the sense that he exercises his will to refuse the pardon, but in the other sense, emotionally, it tears him up that his son has to die. So this is what Paul's talking about. He says, yeah, I... I hate doing I'm doing it, and I'm responsible because vol- nobody made me do it. I voluntarily do it. In that sense, I want to do it. I will to do it, but I don't want to do it in the sense of emotionally. I, I hate it. That's what he says. I do what I hate. That shows the emotional aspect of it. Now, John Gill, who takes the position that Paul is regenerate here, not an unregenerate, and he's not referring to himself in his unregenerate state or a hypothetical unregenerate person, he asked the question, does this sound like an unregenerate man to you? Do unregenerate people do what they hate to do? Remember that old statement by Adrian Rogers, the old Baptist preacher, the sinner leaps into sin and loves it. But here Paul is hating it. So how does this internal struggle represent an unsaved man? It doesn't sound like he's loving sin to me. Well, there's an answer to that. Adam Clark, who thinks that this does refer to Paul as an unregenerate person, says this, quote, I am a slave and under the absolute control of my tyrannical master. I hate his service, but am am obliged to work his will. Who, without blaspheming, can assert that the apostle was speaking this of a man in whom the Spirit of the Lord dwells? Well, I guess that Adam Clark thinks that John Gill is a blasphemer in the NIV study Bible, as well as a lot of other good folks. Now, this, let me just, this is a rabbit trail. You know, it's one thing to disagree with somebody, but to call him a blasphemer on a hard 50-50 type theological question, you're going to take somebody on the opposite side and call him a blasphemer? That's like people today call everybody a racist, and now when you want to really use the word racist to refer to a true racist, you can't use it because the word's been abused so much and used so promiscuously that it's been blanched of all meaning. But at any rate, Gill has made his point. He says this refers to an unregenerate man. He goes on to quote pagans who do struggle with sin. 
he quotes Ovid. Now, Ovid, he was a piece of work. He was, he got banished because I think because of his illicit activity with the emperor's daughter, Augustus Caesar's daughter, Julia, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong about that, but he, I knew he was, well, he just read his books. What is it, The Art of Love? He's got all kind of nasty poetry, dirty sexual innuendo and all that kind of stuff. So here, so he, <laughs> he was somebody who actually loved sin, but here's Clark quoting him and how he struggles with sin. Ovid says this, quote, My reason this, my passion that persuades, I see the right and I approve it too. I condemn the wrong and yet the wrong pursue. And then Clark, Adam Clark quotes the famous Greek tragedian Euripides. For truly, he who sins does not will sin, but wishes to walk uprightly. Yet it is manifest that what he wills, he doth not. And when he wills, not he doth. Well, this just goes to show that pagans are under the law of conscience, and they can they can discern the what's right and what's wrong through their conscience. So they approve in their mind what their conscience says, but they can't live it out. And so then they hate it because they're violating their conscience. It's the same thing. So I guess Clark has made his point. I think that John Gill's argument that does this sound like an unregenerate man, I could answer it this way. It sounds like it to me. However, I can grant that pagans do sometimes complain about what they see as immoral in their lives, but let's put it this way. Most pagans don't. Most pagans have got their conscience so seared, and they get involved in so much sin, and they screw their lives up so bad. This does not sound like a pagan trying to wrestle wrestle with sin. It sounds like a Christian who really, really knows what's right, but has trouble doing it. But anyway, I'll leave that up in the air. We go to Romans 7, verse 16. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So Paul agrees with the law that certain actions are wrong, and the actions that are wrong are certain actions, certain things that Paul is doing. But I notice here the I. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law. Who is that I? That's the essential Paul. That's who he really is. He's That's the new man in Christ. That which is holy and pure agrees with the law because the whole law is holy and just and pure. It commands righteousness. And so Paul agrees in his new man, hey, this is what I should be doing, but then his flesh, that which is in his mortal body, fights against the new man and makes him do, well, I shouldn't say makes him do, induces him to do what is not right to do. But he at least agrees with the law that is good. So we see now the distinction between the new man and the flesh, which we'll bring out later on as we continue. Romans 7, verse 17. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. And, of course, the sin is in his flesh. He's going to say later on in, in the members of his mortal body. So sin and flesh are together. And that's different than the I, the essential Paul, the new man. I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. Now, by saying this, he shows that there's a difference between the saint, the new man, the I, and the flesh, the sin living in, in him. Now, that could be easily be misinterpreted. Paul could be made to say something very irresponsible here, that he was not responsible for the sins he committed. That sin within him forced him to do something that he doesn't want to do. But this cannot be true. Sin cannot force you to do anything you don't want to do because then Paul would not be a responsible moral agent. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It is hardly necessary to say that the apostle means not to disown the blame of yielding to his corruptions by saying, it is not he that does it, but sin that dwelleth in him. Early heretics thus abused his language. I can't help fornicating with my neighbor's wife she's just so pretty i couldn't help it yeah right now notice who that i is i just assumed that was paul the regenerate paul distinguishing in his new man from the sin living in him 
But if you take the other view that the eye refers to the unregenerate Paul, this would show that an unregenerate person could know the difference between right and wrong. And that not only the unregenerate Jewish Paul, but also unregenerate Gentiles, it would be true of them also. They don't have the law, but they do have a conscience. After all, there is such a thing as pagan morality. So then the verse would read like this. So then now I, and un- the unregenerate Paul, and no longer the one doing the sin, but it is sin living in me, but the essential me loves what's right. Ooh, that's a hard one for me to take. I don't think that's what's going on here. Now, this is what Adam Clark says about this verse. Quote, there is a principle in the unregenerate man. He, he believes that Paul is unregenerate here. There is a principle in the unregenerate man stronger than reason itself, a principle which is probably speaking not of the essence of the soul, but acts in it as its lord or as a tyrant. Well, I like that verse except for one word, unregenerate. You can change that word to regenerate. There is a principle in the regenerate man stronger than reason itself, a principle which is properly speaking not of the essence of the soul, but acts in it as its lord or as a tyrant. In other words, the flesh or sin operating in the flesh. Now, if the I there is referring to the regenerate Paul living under the law, which I believe it is, this shows how Christians under the law are powerless to avoid sin if you're under the law because the law produces sin and produces the knowledge of sin. It is powerless as long as they stay under the law. Christians are powerless as long as the Christian stays under the law. If he gets out under the law, Romans 8, gets under the Spirit, well, then he is not powerless anymore. Here's a quote from the NIV Study Bible. If this is the regenerate Paul talking here, this is not an attempt to escape moral responsibility, but a statement of the great control sin can take, can have over a Christian's life. And I think most Christians will testify to that if you've been addicted to alcohol or to pornography or something like that and this verse shows how the christian's new self or the new man is substantially and essentially different than sin the new creation is not a sinner the new creation is a saint the new creation has to fight a battle with something sin which is alien to it let me give you a quote that this is paul talking about his regenerate battle with sin and law Quote, to explain this and the following statements, as many do, of the sins of unrenewed men against their better convictions is to do painful violence to the apostles' language and to affirm of the unregenerate what is untrue, that coexistence and mutual hostility of flesh and spirit in the same renewed man, which is so clearly taught in Romans 8, 4, and in Galatians 5, 16, etc., is the true and only key to the language of this and the following verses. The hostility of flesh and spirit in a renewed man. I'll just ask you, have you ever felt opposition of flesh and spirit in the renewed in your re- renewed self? I bet you have. And so that means what Paul is talking about here fits your experience perfectly. That opposition of law and spirit, we can see it in Romans 8, 4, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's the contrast. It's not between the, the old man and the spirit. It's the flesh. It's not between the I, which is the new man, but it's the flesh, that principle that operates in Paul's flesh. And again, flesh is metaphorical flesh, according to the spirit. Well, the Adam Clark guys who say that Paul is talking about an unregenerate person here, they could take that verse, Romans 8, 4, as the flesh in that verse is referring to an unregenerate person. In order that the law's requirement will be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, in other words, those un believers out there who walk according to the flesh but us christians who walk according to the spirit so you can you can do that so that's not a slam dunk verse on the good side if you will how about galatians 5:16? i say then walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh 
Well, there very clearly Paul says that Christians can have desires of the flesh, which means they can sin. And so that would fit Paul's experience in Romans 7 just fine. Now, I'll repeat this. If, if you don't like Romans 7 is talking about the battle that goes on between the Christian and the flesh, the new man and the flesh, let me give you a quote from Steve Atkinson who, who believes that Paul is talking about an unregenerate person, not himself, well, himself as an unregenerate person. But he says that Galatians 5, 16 through 25 does not refer to unregenerate people struggling with the flesh. So if even if someone who takes the Adam Clark position that Paul is referring to unregenerate people in Romans 7, we can still go to Galatians 5, 16 and in order to show that the new man has got to struggle with the flesh. We go to Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. Notice that there's something in him. There's the me, the essential I, the essential Paul, but there's something in him that's in his flesh. That's alien to him. It's not who he really is. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. Now, notice when Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me, this is not an unqualified statement. He says, nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. Because if you say that nothing good lives in you, that means that God created a new man and there's nothing good in it. Does that make any sense? That would mean you're still a sinner instead of a saint. Paul distinguishes the eye from his flesh, as I said earlier. Now, in his flesh, there's nothing good, and obviously that's not the physical flesh. We're not ascetics here. We're not going to whip ourselves, wear hair shirts, and whip ourselves with whips. It's talking about in... Uh, the metaphorical use of flesh means that principle which is separate from God and which is outside of his power and which controls the new man and beats him down and seduces the new man. Now let me point out the present tense of lives here, for I know that nothing good lives in me. you got to say that's the historical present to get it back to the past when Paul was an unregenerate person, but it seems much easier to me just to say that Paul's talking about his experience now in his flesh. Nothing good lives in me now, in my flesh, in the present. Now, let me give you some theologians who have held that Romans 7 refers to a born-again, regenerate Christian. I hate to stack authority here or, or do a little odd vericundium appeal to authority, but I can't help it. I'm going to listen to these guys who have held my position, the NIV Study Bible's position, John Gill's position. This is courtesy of Cranfield, the commentator. Ambrose, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther... Calvin and Bart. I hate to mention Bart because he's a neo-orthodox, but the rest of them are orthodox, and they all held that Paul's talking about his life under the law and under the tyranny of sin as a Christian. Now, I will note that those who hold this view often go one illegitimate step too far, and this, my friends, is what the implications of this controversy are. Some people say that this struggle that you have with sin is the normal Christian life, and therefore that engenders defeatism. Because one could say, well, yeah, I'm struggling with sin, but Paul was struggling with sin. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is with the Christian life. Now, if you think that I'm exaggerating about that, let me give you some quotes from the famous Reformed theologian Arthur Pink, quoted by Leiter, the New Covenant theologian guy, who says this. This is Pink. This moan, O wretched man that I am, expresses the normal experience of the Christian. The normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not so moan is, an abnormal and un is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. In other words, Pink is saying, I need to go around every day saying, Oh, I'm such a wretched sinner. I'm a, sin has got me down. Sin has beat me, and I can't beat it. 
The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ, or so ignorant of the teaching of Scripture, or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. Pink also wrote, The one who is truly in communion with Christ will emit this groan daily and hourly. So every hour, I'm saying, Oh, I'm just a miserable, beat-down sinner. Did Paul do that? That's nonsense, Reed. I don't even wonder if Mr. Pink has ever read Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. In Romans 8, we see nothing but victory and sanctification apart from the law. So you see, this view that I espouse, that Paul is talking about his life in the flesh, his regenerate life under the law, in the flesh, and under the power of sin, can be abused to say that this is normal. But I don't abuse it because I agree with Mr. Leiter, this is bad. I agree that we need to get into Romans 8 and know that we can have a victorious victory over sin. There's too many Reformed theologians like Pink who, who talk like that. They're so scared of Wesleyism and sinless perfection and the exchange life and victorious, victorious type of Christian life teaching that they go too far the other way and talk about we're just sinners and we're just enslaved by sin and we'll never get out of it. And We move now to Romans 7 verse 19. Paul continues, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. The I there, of course, is the essential Paul, the new man, the new creation. Now, this verse is an exact, almost exact repeat of Romans 7:15. When one repeats something, he must think it's important, so Paul says it again. I practice the evil that I don't want to do. There's something impelling him to do something that's against what his inner man desires. Now, here's a problem for the view that Romans 7 refers to an unregenerate man. Why would an unregenerate man want to do good? Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. A self that desires to do good and a self that in spite of this does evil cannot be the struggles between conscience and passions in the unregenerate because the description given of this desire to do good in Romans 7.22 as such cannot be ascribed with the least show of truth to any but the renewed. In other words, believers don't really struggle with sin. And, of course, Adam Clark pointed out that sometimes they do. They do sometimes, but who really struggles with sin? It's Christians. They're the ones that have the struggles. They're the ones that care. Verse 20, Romans 7. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Now, this is a repetition of Romans 7:17, 7, which says, So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. A, a direct re repetition. Again, if you repeat something, he thinks it's important. And as I said in that verse, you can't, Paul is not saying he's not responsible for what, he, what he's doing. What he's saying is the sin that lives in him impelled him to do it. Romans 7.21, so I discover this principle, when I want to do what is good, evil is with me. Now, the principle there, I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, the NIV has law, so I discover this law. But law means principle, as the NIV Study Bible says, and principle is a better translation because we don't want to get confused with the Mosaic Law. So Paul has discovered this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me, which is a repetition of what we've just talked about. So we'll go to verse 22. For in my inner self I joyfully agree with God's law. Again, does that sound like a pagan or an unregenerate Jew or an unregenerate Gentile saying, Oh, I just love what God's commanded me to do. Oh, I love that he won't let me have sex with my neighbor's wife. Oh, this is just wonderful. I, because Paul says, 
joyfully agree. I think most people can say, oh, God, you know, I really ought not to do that. I, I really shouldn't, but gosh, I want to so bad. The NIV study Bible says, quote, It is difficult to see how a non-Christian could say this, for in my inner self I joyfully agree with God's law. You doggone right it's difficult. John Gill says this, This an unregenerate man cannot do. He does not like its commands. They are disagreeable to his corrupt nature. And as it is a threatening, cursing, damning law, I, it can never be delighted in by him. The moralist, the Pharisee who obeys it externally, do not love it nor delight in it. He obeys it not from love to its precepts, but from fear of its threatenings, from a desire of popular esteem, and from low mercenary selfish views, in order to gain the applause of men and favor of God. Only a regenerate man delights in the law of God. You hear, Mr. Gill? But just to be fair, let me give you a view from the other side. Adam Clark, who says that this is an unregenerate Paul, who is saying that in his unregenerate in herself, he joyfully agreed with God's law. Adam Clark's quote, Every Jew and every unregenerate man who receives the Old Testament as a revelation from God must acknowledge the great purity, excellence, and utility of its maxims, etc., though he will ever find that without the grace of the Lord Jesus he can never act according to these heavenly maxims. Well, I would submit to Adam Clark, I take the average pagan here in America, no, they do not acknowledge the great purity, excellence, and utility of the Old Testament law's maxims. No, they do not. Adam Clark in another place says this, quote, This expression, therefore, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, can mean no more than this, that there are some inward faculties in the soul which delight in the law of God. This expression is particularly adapted to the principles of the Pharisees. The Pharisees joyfully? The Pharisees joyfully delight in the law of God in the inward man? But Adam Clark thinks so. This expression is particularly adapted to the principle of the Pharisees, of whom St. Paul was one before his conversion. They received the law as the oracles of God and confessed that it deserved the most serious regard. Their veneration was inspired by a sense of its original and full conviction that it was true. To some parts of it they paid the most superstitious regard. They had it written upon their phylacteries, which they carried about with them at all times. It was often read and expounded in their synagogues, and they took delight in studying its precepts. On that account, both the prophets and our Lord agree in saying that they delighted in the law of God, though they regarded not its chief and most essential precepts. Paul says, I joyfully, in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. He didn't say, I externally agree with God's law like the Pharisees. I think that Adam Clark is way off the beam here. We go to Romans 23, chapter 7. Paul continues, But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. The Holman Christian Study Bible has parts of my body. I think other translations have flesh. Again, he's using his members, his hands, because that's what does sin, or his legs run to sin. And so he's using the parts of his body, his flesh, as a synonym for the, uh, the metaphorical sense of flesh, which means basically the power of sin in a person's life. And you notice he distinguishes between the I, that's the essential Paul, the new man. I see a different principle, and again, law should be principle here. I see a different principle in my flesh, in the parts of my body. So there's a conflict going on between his flesh and the new man. Waging war against the law of my mind. The law of my mind, that's whenever you see mind, heart, spirit, or inner man, that's talking about that part of you which has been born, the non-material, non-corporeal part of you which has been born again. So in that new man, 
you know that you're supposed to be doing something else, but then your your hands kind of just kind of want to wander over to that Playboy. You're going to turn the page. So, and so Paul says that I, now I've become a prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. And to those who say, well, only non-Christians can be prisoners to the law. I don't know. You ever seen a Christian under the slavery of pornography? I had a friend of mine who spent years trying to get out of it, and I saw what it meant to be a prisoner to that sin. So don't tell me a Christian can't be prisoner to sin in his flesh. Let me repeat this. In Romans 7, Paul is a saint who is sinning. He is not a sinner who is sinning because the I, the new man, has been born again by Christ. The old man has been crucified. It's dead. It's gone. It ain't fighting the new man here. It's the flesh. Big difference. Now, notice that word prisoner. Sin is taking me prisoner, Paul says. And people like Adam Clark, who say that this is the unregenerate Paul speaking, he's a prisoner to the law, a Christian cannot be prisoner to the law of sin, to the principle of sin. You want to bet? Why why do we say that? Can't a person in jail make a jailbreak? Can he get away from his jailer? Christians can get away from their jailer. Christians can get away from their sin. The answer is in Romans 8, live by the Spirit. Romans 7, verse 24, Paul says, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this dying body? Now, Paul, of course, is not referring to his decaying physical body here. He's referring to his body as a metaphor, as a representative of his dying self. Now, that dying body is figurative of body of sin, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. We could kind of paraphrase it as the body which is characterized by sin. Who can rescue me from this flesh that keeps wanting to turn the pages of the playboy? Who can rescue me from that? It doesn't mean that who will rescue me from this new man who's dying because then how's the new man going to be how can that which is born of the holy spirit be corruptible and die and not go to heaven well of course unless you're an armenian believe you can lose your salvation which i don't once the new man is born again you're going to be you're going to go to heaven so paul is not talking about who's going to rescue me from my person who's dying here he's talking about who's going to rescue me from this flesh out here that's causing me death this body of sin I'm not sure the Holman Christian Study Bible is the best translation here, this dying body. Body of sin, the NIV has it. This sin which is in my body, which is in the members of my body, which is impelling me to go out and and, and pulling me and seducing me to sin. Who's going to stop my hands from pulling the trigger? John Gill puts it this way for body of sin or this dying body. The body of flesh subject to death for sin. I think that's a good definition there. And, of course, when Paul asked that rhetorical question, who will rescue me, the answer, of course, is Jesus. He knew the answer when he wrote the question. As Steve Ackerson puts it, the answer was Jesus. We see the answer in verse 25 in Romans 7. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your answer right there. So Mr. Pink, who thinks that we're supposed to say in Romans 7 and just be beaten down and enchained to sin, that somehow he, I don't know what he says about verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. So there's the contrast again between the essential Paul, his mind, the I, I myself, that's the new man. But then his flesh, this principle is working in his body and makes him pull against what his mind wants to do, his inner man. That's the law of sin. So sin operates in his flesh, in that part of him which does not want to conform to his nature as a new man. Now, those who believe that Paul is not talking of a regenerate man, but an unregenerate man here, need to deal with this question. How in the world can an unregenerate man say he's a slave to the law of God? Have you ever seen a non-Christian that says that he's a slave 
to his conscience, a slave to it, really, or a Jew that's a slave to the Old Testament law? No, 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 no. I don't think so. This is a regenerate person that's talking here. Now, let's finish up Romans 7 by saying this. I mentioned that great contrast between the inner man, the mind, I myself. We need to be sure that we say that it's that new man is fighting the flesh because he says that I'm a slave to the law of God with my flesh, not his old man. Paul never says the old man is fighting the new man. The flesh can be mortified. The old man can't be mortified because he's already dead. The old man is dead, as Paul point blank said in Romans 6, the old man is dead. How do you put to death something that's already been put to death? The old man is dead, but we still got that flesh that we got to fight against. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finally finished with Romans 7. We'll start with Romans 8 in the next audio and see that there's no condemnation in Christ that comes from that law, that we can live in the Spirit, not under the law, that we can conquer sin. The good news is coming up. Hope you stay tuned for that audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.